The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, good afternoon and welcome everybody and we're delighted that we've been able to restart our Trinity Long Room Hub Medical and Health Seminars for the 2021 academic year. Um, for all the downsides of the pandemic, I think the liberation of educational spaces in virtual space to effectively around the globe has also been very liberating and has allowed for an, a great amount of cross fertilization. I'm a geriatrician and along with the Professor of German, uh, Professor Mary Cosgrove, we co-chair Medical and Health Humanities in the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is a very exciting and dynamic centre for arts and humanities in Trinity College Dublin. This seminar series is the longest running uh, in any Irish medical school, but we also work closely with as many as we can across the very many disciplines, schools and institutions. And indeed, I currently chair a working group of the Irish Humanities Alliance, uh, bringing together all the higher education institutions involved to progress and develop uh, medical and health humanities in Ireland. And indeed, a survey has gone out to all of the associated higher education institutions uh, to see who's involved and how can we generate synergies and, uh, and excitement. So um, you're very welcome. The format today, as in all of our seminars so far, has been to try and forge some greater sense of bringing together the disciplines. So by and large, for example, when we've had a historian who does history of medicine, we've tried to have as a discussant a physician who say has a PhD in history, who's engaged in history. So to bring together the two disciplines. We've also had a longish history of using audiovisual links because it's very difficult for clinicians to come on to the main campus site or humanities and arts academics who are heavily involved with teaching and research to also travel out to clinical sites. So in many ways, what we're doing now represents a further development of what we've been trying to do. We see the medical and health humanities as a vital part of epistemology of what it is to be well, to be ill, to traverse through the healthcare system. COVID has provided a huge spark for us to rethink, for to review, and has really been hugely, reminds us how important the arts and humanities are in helping us gain perspective, whether it's Boccaccio's Decameron, Camus' The Plague, through cinematic media like Outbreak, um, we really need to get a sense of what's vital and what's important. So we're really pleased for this um, 21 series uh, to have starting off one of our own in many senses, uh, Professor Neil Vickers, uh, who graduated from with a BA from Trinity, went on to Paris and studied at the Ecole Normale Supérieure, and um, has been a key figure. He is the director of the Centre for Humanities and Health in 
King's College London and really has been a very formative figure and a hugely important catalyst, I think, for developing the, the, the whole area of medical and health humanities. He'll speak for 30, 35 minutes, and this will be followed by uh, our discussant this morning, uh, Professor Paul Fanukin, uh, who was the, has been widely published in the area, most recently published, uh, co-edited co a book called Emergence, which is poetry and prose on aging chosen by over 40 Irish geriatricians, a phenomenal piece of work. And after that, the Q&A will be through the Q&A button on Zoom. The chat function is disabled in terms of coming into us as a standard in public meetings. So absolutely delighted that Neil is going to kick off this morning with um, on the nature and meaning of care. Thank you, Neil. Thanks very, very much, Des. And um, thanks everybody for being here. I especially want to thank um, Des for his invitation to give this seminar and to Paul for agreeing to act as a respondent. It means a huge amount to me to talk to a group at Trinity, my alma mater in Dublin, where I grew up. And as my friend and former Trinity tutor, David Scott said to me, it also gives me an opportunity to, to deploy some of the skills I acquired there, which is another way of saying thank you. I think it is vital that researchers in the medical humanities should strive to be as explicit as possible about what they understand care to be. This is because however we construe it, care has the potential to map the entire dis interdisciplinary space we share, whatever name you want to give to it. Care also offers powerful ways of establishing continuities with other disciplines, infant research, education, feminism, neuroscience, I could go on. And yet, if you look around the medical humanities, you find that the definitions given are either extremely capacious, so that almost nothing is excluded, or they are piecemeal and laconic. As examples of what I mean, um, Lisa Baretza in her wonderful book, Enduring Time, 2017, defines care as the arduous temporal practice of maintaining ongoing relations with others and the world. Baretza is a feminist working in the ethics of care tradition inaugurated by Carol Gilligan, Joan Tronto and Dorothy Held. And as Tronto remarks, the concept is so broad, it seems as, as if almost everything we do touches upon care. And she continues, once we start to see caring, we will see it everywhere. On the piecemeal and laconic side, I would include Anne-Marie Moll's work, both in The Logic of Care and The Logic of Choice, which came out in 2008, and in her earlier book, The Body Multiple. And they're perhaps uh, the most influential accounts in the field today. Um, I feel rather ambivalent about them. So the field's attachment to vague and infinitely expanding notions of care its failure to develop a coherent research agenda around it is perhaps based at least in part on ambivalence about the place of medicine in the medical humanities, um, which is inexplicable to outsiders, but a real force nonetheless. Perhaps also on a reluctance to be open about disagreements concerning the directions the field should go in. Perhaps too, the so-called first wave of medical humanities research 
overdid care by putting a refreshed vision of what it takes to be a humanistic physician at the center um, of its um, vision. And here I'm thinking of works like Arthur Kleinman's The Illness Narratives, Eric Cassell's The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Medicine, or Howard Brody's Doctor Stories. And I'd also include the entire project of narrative medicine uh, in this tradition because it contains a very explicit doctrine of what constitutes good clinical care. Listen to and interact with the patient's story. Now, in this brief talk, I want to try out some ideas on care that my collaborator Derek Bolton and I have been developing. Derek is a clinician working at the Maudsley Hospital in London, and I'm an interested outsider. Uh, I was an epidemiologist for 10 years. But in this talk, I'm concerned with the care of the sick, and which I take to be the core preoccupation of our field. Um, you'll notice, however, that I see care as a continuum. Most healthcare is given in the home by people who are not clinically qualified, and it is often no less excellent for that. So uh, I may appear a bit presumptuous, but I'm looking forward to your comments and especially your criticisms. These are ideas I'm throwing out. So I begin with a paragraph from Arthur Kleinman writing in The Lancet in 2015. Kleinman says, I think of care as first and foremost, a developmental process that whatever its biological basis is learned and practiced as part of personal development, social cultivation and maturation of our sensibilities and capabilities. We learn to take care of ourselves and others. Our cares are made all the more real by the threats and vulnerabilities that affect people everywhere." Unquote. I think Kleinman is right to insist that we should look for the roots of care in development. Care is a general human capacity that is developed in the course of growing up. It's a many-sided capacity, which means we do not all possess it to the same degree or in the same way. It's a capacity that could be professionalized, provided it has reached a certain point. In what follows, I propose to home in on three aspects of care that seem to me to be crucial in sustaining an attitude of care. The first two are psychobiological in nature and have their own natural history in every aspiring caregiver's life. They're also pre-reflective, that's crucial. The difficulties they pose are often little short of visceral. Some of the difficulties of becoming a good clinical listener arise from this visceral dimension. Um, the third is more social in character. So the names I give these three elements of care are mirroring, holding, and compassion. Mirroring is the most fundamental of the three. It enables us to forge an intersubjective, intercorporeal link with others. Holding, a name I take from the pediatrician and psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, is, a more, is more developed as it enables us to do something with that link. There can be no holding without mirroring. Compassion is the most widely discussed and familiar of the three. I will be using the term 
in roughly the sense set out by Beecham and Childress in their hugely influential principles of biomedical ethics. Compassion is characterized by them as in terms of beneficence, weigh the benefits of treatment against the, against the risks in the patient's interest, non-maleficence, do no harm, and then respect for autonomy and justice. Compassion was the feature of care that Sir Robert Francis singled out in his 2013 report on serious failings, failings at the Mid Staffordshire NHS Foundation Trust. Hospitals were urged to develop a culture of compassion. Nurses in particular should be interviewed to ensure that they possessed the appropriate values, attitudes and behaviours and that they demonstrated a motivation to enable them to put the welfare of others above their own interests. I'll come back to Francis. Uh, care can be good or bad. It has a messy dimension. And here I'm referring not just to bodily mess. Many caring roles require a willingness to be challenged, disturbed and discomforted. There will be aspects of caregiving we are comfortable with and which go well and parts we're less comfortable with. I should say too that where a person stands in a care process will result in real differences in the amount of mirroring, holding or compassion he or she will be called upon to evince. A home carer has to stay close to the detail of a patient's experience. So to a greater or lesser extent, um, do nurses, OTs, GPs, psychiatrists and geriatricians, among others. These will have to master all three aspects of the components of care in my model. Surgeons and radiographers, not so much. So with these three, with these preliminary remarks out of the way, uh, I'll now proceed to my exposition. So mirroring. Infants as young as six hours old appear to have a capacity to imitate those around them. Colwyn Trevathan and Janis Kubimutsakis have described experiments in which a grown-up sticks out her tongue or opens her mouth at an infant a few hours old and the infant does the same thing back. We know it's not a reflex because infants don't always do it, but they do it a great deal. The baby has to translate the experience of seeing someone into a proprioceptive impression which forms the basis of their imitation. They don't just look at their own tongues or hands or whatever it is they're using to imitate the grown-up, they just do it. Seeing others' actions gives us a template for action. We do not consciously copy those others, rather we discover that we have copied them through feeling and action. And this is the most rudimentary form of intersubjectivity and it's rooted in intercorporeality. I mention it here because the carer's body is always involved in mirroring. Mirroring is a form of recognition. It assumes ever more complex guises as we grow up. Social engagement, the links that can join one person's mind with the mind of someone else, begins in infancy. According to Kubi Mutsakis, infants are endowed with a motivational system that, quote, seeks another emotional being with whom to play together, um, a cooperative, complementary, intersubjective game. As we get older, if all goes well, 
we start to sense the intentions, interests, and feelings of other human selves through sympathetic response to motives and emotions as displayed in the shapes and rhythms of their bodily movements, as well as in their language. Again, note, the social engagement system always involves the body. Verbal people screen it out and consign it to the periphery of their experience. But once deep illness enters the picture, it comes back with a vengeance. Now, deep illness teaches us two important rules of thumb about mirroring. I don't say it's the case in all cases, but it's, it's very uh, widespread, I think. The first is that humans have an innate propensity to use others as mirrors in which they, like, in which they hope to find something of value in themselves reflected back. Some examples might be helpful at this point. If A tells B he has to undergo tests for cancer, B may feel he's being asked in some very non-specific way to reflect back A's healthy self. Often someone in B's position will say something like, I know you're gonna be fine. And this may be just what A wants to hear. But what will B mirror back to A about himself if, he turns out, if it turns out he has a serious illness? The illness has to be contained as a disturbance that does not make a decisive difference. Now, people with potentially fatal conditions sometimes complain that their physician fails to acknowledge them as people. They either communicate the brute fact of the diagnosis and invite the patient to come back for more tests, or just as often, the diagnosis has the effect of making their other interests irrelevant. Um, I guess David Rabin's paper um, from the early 80s, uh, isolated by my illness. Um, David Rabin, in fact, uh, collaborated with a physician at UCD, wrote a standard book on endocrinology. Um, and he got, he was struck down at the age of 40 with motor neuron disease. Uh, he taught at Vanderbilt, he went to another medical center to get diagnosed. He, more or less diagnosed himself. And he was very hurt that the physician who diagnosed him didn't ask him about his research, despite the fact that he was a renowned biomedical researcher in charge of a major university research center. The sociologist Albert Robillard, who lived with ALS for 30 years, sorry, motor neuron disease, was constantly confronted by his clinician's inability to see anything other than his diagnosis. There is something about having a fatal disease, he writes, um, and here I'm quoting, that immediately renders the diagnosee less worthy and having fewer prospects than others. The image of the life of the fatally ill leads to comments like, like the physicians telling me to go home, take Valium, get death counseling and prepare to die. It is a social text shared by most people in society and reproduced in their remarks. There is an alternative text that says one lives until one dies, but one does not hear it very much. When the patient does hear this formulation, that life is not over till it's over, it can sound like it's being introduced as a corrective to the negative view of terminally ill individuals. In fact, sorry, unquote, 
In fact, the phenomenon is not confined to fatal illnesses. The sociologist and disability activist Irving Zola described an experiment he undertook as a participant observer at Het Dorp, a 65 acre village located in Arnhem in the Netherlands, specifically designed to house 400 severely disabled adults. Although he was disabled himself, Zola was mobile, occasionally using crutches. Yet, and here I'm quoting him, in order to gain an awareness of the physical existence of the residents and perhaps some greater ease of communication with them, he decided to spend his time at Hetdorp in a wheelchair. It was a disaster. As soon as I sat in the wheelchair, this is Zola speaking, I was no longer seen as a person who could fend for himself. Although I was in the company of a friend who had known me for well for nine months and had never done anything physical for me without asking, now he took over without permission. Suddenly, in his eyes, I was no longer able to carry things, reach for objects, or even push myself around. Though I was perfectly capable of doing all these things, I was being wheeled around and things were being brought to me, all without my asking. Most frightening was my own compliance, my alienation from myself and from the process." Unquote. Others ignored Zola in the wheelchair, addressing their comments to his friend instead. When he went to eat in the canteen, he thought he'd be a focus of attention as a newcomer and a stranger, and he had been when he was standing up. But in the wheelchair, he observed a marked diminution in others' interest in him. He was also disturbed by his own willingness to fall in with this judgment. Somehow, he writes, I lost the right of protest. I had accepted their view of me. It doesn't seem far-fetched to suggest that the residents of Hetdorp hated their own disability and saw it reflected in Zola from the moment he sat down in the wheelchair. His inability to resist their debased image of him was a consequence of his reflecting their self-alienation. So long as he was not in a wheelchair, he could reflect back their most able-bodied aspects. But as soon as he sat down, he lost this ability. So this brings me to my second rule of thumb about mirroring. Out of awareness, humans ceaselessly scrutinize the implicit dimensions of interactional space in search not of recognition, but of the conditions that might support recognition. The founding moment of Zola's week as a participant observer in Hetdorp was in fact a marvelous parable of this. Zola imagined by, that by getting into the wheelchair, he would raise a distance between his subjects and himself, leaving his own identity undisturbed. The residents did not want Zola to be like them. They wanted him to act as a transformative mirror. They wanted him to do something with what he saw. Donald Winnicott would say they wanted him to hold them. Holding is what parents do for babies. They hold them literally and they hold them figuratively by feeding them, changing them and attending to their needs. Winnicott liked to talk about the holding environment or the facilitating environment to emphasize the fact that holding depends on a great many contingencies and a great many actors. 
In child rearing, the primary caregiver makes a judgment about what an infant can manage and what he can't and supplies the difference. It's strongly rooted in empathy. The caregiver looks after the infant's body, taking increasing account of the infant's, only relation, the infant's own relationship with his body. Clinicians learn something analogous concerning adults' relationships with their own bodies. One of the most interesting features of Albert Robillard's memoir um, are his accounts of being turned over by nurses in a way he found agonizing. Deprived of speech, he couldn't express his difficulty through words, but he usually wailed. They in turn cut him off because they were too busy concentrating on the maneuver to be able to listen to him. So holding implies a degree of adaptability that was missing in this case. Lastly, Winnicott suggests that holding means following the, day, the minute day-to-day -day changes belonging to the infant's growth and development, both physical and psychological. In the case of illness, a caregiver who holds a patient attends to the physiological changes caused by the illness. In the case of parents and infants, holding could be said to refer to processes of care that go on outside awareness. These processes extend the range of what the infant can do. They make him feel less dependent, more autonomous, better able to share in the meaning making taking place all around him. Holding hinges in all cases on a pooling of bodily resources. Although I don't have time to go into it today, I think one of the most important things healthy people do for one another is to hold one another's health as it were, in trust. It's not something that requires any conscious effort. After he lost the power to speak, Robillard and his wife devised a method of communicating using an alphabet board. His wife would pass a device across a board and he across the board and he would blink when she reached the letter he needed. They attempted to teach this method to nurses who looked after him at home. Quote, a few would try but then they would become frustrated and stop. Because it was slow, the nurses often couldn't remember the last letter Robillard had selected. And even when they had collected enough letters and sequence to form a word such as when, the nurses were often unable to recognize it as an English word. Now, I think this is fascinating because I think what was happening was that the nurses were registering in their own bodies some of the difficulties involved in being that guy. It was enormously distressing to get close to. Interestingly, Robillard says that the only nurses he could get to use the alphabet board were people from Hawaii, where he lived. And he thought that this was because they had, quote, the knowledge and motivational culture to formulate themselves conversationally as members of the same social space, unquote. In my terms, they could hold him because they could mirror him. And holding may be implicated in the well-documented phenomenon in which medical students arriving on hospital wards for the first time believe they suffer from the same serious illnesses they treat patients for. This common occurrence was first studied in the 1960s when it was estimated that between 70 and 80% of students suffered from it. At first, it was studied as a transient form of hypochondria but I see it as a functional disorder rooted in the shock of connection 
to the sick other's body. What all these phenomena show is the extent to which we unconsciously use other people's psychophysical experience as a template for our own. We do it all the time in health without disturbing consequences. But once illness presents, this faculty becomes uncomfortably conspicuous. And this is why I think to care is to put yourself in harm's way. Now, it's not all bad news. One of the most intriguing things Winnicott says about holding is that it always creates something new. And I think this can be seen in instances of good care for the sick. It's not unknown for a condition to become as much part, a part of the carer's identity as it is of the person they look after. This sometimes occurs to such an extent that the carer may talk about it as if they had it, but happen to be asymptomatic. You can see this very clearly in the case of parents with ch of children with Down syndrome, you know, saying, hey, that's me you're talking about there. I believe I've seen the same phenomenon in a great many clinicians who are passionate about their patients' welfare. Um, Joe Pike may be familiar to some of you here. He's a political journalist on Sky News, and he achieved fame briefly at the end of 2019 when he showed Boris Johnson, our dear leader, um, a photo on, on his mobile phone of a four-year-old boy with suspected pneumonia lying on the floor of a hospital in Leeds as he waited for a bed. And rather than look at the photo, um, Johnson snatched Pike's phone and put it in his pocket. Now, Joe Pike's husband died of motor neuron disease, and he continues to raise money for research and support for people with it. And you can go onto YouTube and watch him talk about the disease. He's, he's very inspiring. But he talks about it as if he had it asymptomatically. And here, a remark by the philosopher Paul Ricoeur seems pertinent. Care, Ricoeur says, is a crucial motivator in the search for equality in the midst of inequality. In a sense, you can't get close to an illness without sharing it in some way. And I'm going to say very little about um, compassion beyond this. Um, so compassion being the third component. The response to the other in distress by going to help is called compassion in the philosophy of medicine. And it tends to be understood primarily as behavior. It's not understood in terms of feelings such as sympathy and empathy. Now, mirroring and holding as I've described them are fundamentally intersubjective capacity that make very strong demands of the caregiver as well as of the care recipient. I want to suggest that compassion too has a powerful intersubjective dimension, though it takes it a different form. If you consider Beecham and Childress's four principles of ethical healthcare, beneficence, non-maleficence, respect for autonomy and justice, you find that they all involve recognition of the person with the illness. The autonomy principle secures the fundamental point that healthcare is of the person, not the disease process, the harm principle also implies this, since it refers to harm to the person. So recognition of the sick other's personhood seems inseparable from recognition that he or she is in some sense like me. It raises the question, what would I want in his or her situation? Now, 
I guess I'm saying that you can't recognize the other's subjectivity without recognizing intersubjectivity. I think compassion is the only part of care that is well theorized and well regulated. And it's the part that's easiest to impart as precepts. So going back to Sir Robert Francis's calls for more compassion in healthcare, these are very well motivated, but they sidestep the fact that it takes a special kind of person to put themselves in harm's way by becoming a professional caregiver. We don't talk about that enough in this country. I don't know about Ireland, but here we love protocols. I love protocols too. And we love algorithms and multiple choice questionnaires that people can do on computers. But just as you know, you can't, uh, you're unlikely to learn to swim by watching YouTubes of people learning to swim. You have to get in the water and getting in the water is a very different experience. It's the same with caring. So I hope uh, my account of mirroring and holding will go some ways towards shining a light on this more visceral dimension. Thanks for listening. Over to well, the floor. Thank, thanks very much indeed, uh, Professor Vickers. Neil, uh, that really was a very gripping talk. I, I have to say it's very refreshing to have a seminar and a talk that uh, is without a PowerPoint. Um, I'll just start. Uh, it is without PowerPoint. It's and it was very powerful. It's given us a huge amount of food for thought, and we look forward now to some discussion from Professor Paul Fanukin uh, of the University of Limerick, and then after we'll deal with some questions and answers, and indeed perhaps ban some ideas among ourselves. So thank you. Over to Paul Fanukin now. Just see if I can deal with the technology. You can hear me, Neil. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Des, for inviting me to participate. Um, maybe from the outset to explain that I come to this from uh, my background, essentially as a medical educator, and over many decades, having approached my educational role uh, under the guise of the three domains of the acquisition of knowledge, the acquisition of skills, clinical skills, communication skills, and the acquisition of attitudes, the so-called cognitive, psychomotor, and effective domain uh, of learning. And many people will be only too well aware that uh, over time there has been a concern that particularly with the mushrooming of knowledge and indeed of uh, skills and technologies, that the affective domain, the attitudinal domain, has been pushed to one side. And it's come to a situation where the well-trotted-out phrase, which is all too true, I'm afraid, is that the illness in the person becomes more important than the person with the illness. And this, of course, has led to the movement uh, to try and deal with the dehumanization of medicine that has resulted, and in some shape or form, to try to reintroduce the centrality of humanity into the practice of medicine and that of course has uh, underscored the importance of uh, the humanities in medicine and many many medical schools the world over now see this as being an important and uh, for too long a neglected area of medical education. Um, 
so so again the the idea is to try and re, re rebalance medical education with the outcomes of promoting the psychological and emotional development of health practitioners so that you enhance their role as caregivers and enhance the quality of the, of the care that they deliver to their patients. Uh, on the very topic of caring, I'm always reminded of uh, something that I've heard repeatedly said by a good friend and colleague, Bill Shannon, who was the first professor of general practice uh, in Ireland and has been uh, a lifelong medical educator. And he tries to explain to students that uh, for many of the patients that they'll be dealing with, that what's more important for them is not that they care what the doctor knows, but knowing that the doctor cares. So I think the whole notion of caring uh, is a hugely important one. So with that as a background, um, it's really uh, fantastic for me, and I'm indebted to you, Neil, for giving me some kind of insights into uh, the notion of caring and to bring scholarship to this area, because I think scholarship is needed for everybody, myself, and other medical educators to get a better understanding of the whole uh, construct of caring. Um, I'm reassured by the notion that, you know, what you quoted from the, wor the work of Arthur Kleinman, that it's a developmental process and that the whole ability to become more caring can be learned and can be practiced. And I think that's one key message from your presentation for me, uh, but also what were for me new concepts on uh, the elements of caring, bringing in the notion of mirroring, in other words, reflecting back. And I've read your paper on a couple of occasions and hear you talk to it today. That's starting to make more and more sense for me. And it's something I need to look into more and in fact, read some of the references that you've given. Uh, secondly, the notion of mirroring, which I find just a little bit harder to get my head around, but I am starting to understand what you're talking about, the idea of holding something in trust, leading, of course, to the notion of compassion. So just again, to thank you for the talk and for making it so uh, digestible and understandable. And I think we all have work to do in now running with this and continuing to make the whole notion of caring more understandable and to bring scholarship to it. So thank you. Thanks very, very much, Paul. Really grateful to you. Well, thanks very much indeed, Paul, and certainly that's great to get that very uh, grounded approach. And I think, like you, it's particularly helpful to perhaps move beyond compassion, which is the area that has been emphasised. And, and perhaps I think this idea of mirroring and holding are, are very potent and they bring it back into the issue also of intercorporeality and the risk and, and, and challenge and potentially harm. What I might come back, there's no, and pl please feel free, we're delighted to have attendees online to put in a comment as much as a question into the Q&A box. A couple of things struck me. One of the challenges as I look at care, uh, both Neil and Paul, is that accounts sometimes seem to get a bit dichotomized. I'm, I'm deeply in favor of Arthur Kleinman, and I've written an account of my own mother recently up in a journal, but it seems to me there's almost this very positive, very much this is part of our development, or else there is then darker, more burdensome ones. And indeed, I think we, in gerontology, we've contributed to this by talking about caregiver burden rather than burdensome aspects of care. 
So is there a danger that there's a dichotomy of carer narratives into the very bright and positive and the very negative? I think there is. I think there is. Um, and within the, I, I'm, I'm very committed to the developmental view and to the view that caring should be seen as, um, as psychobiologically as possible. It's something that we're all doing. Hmm. And uh, in the sickness case, the sickness draws on very specific capacities. Um, and I, I found infant research very, very uh, impressive in uh, just, just the, 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 the concepts it has for talking about this. Um, nobody talks about uh, caregiver burden about screaming babies. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, when you're with a small baby and the, you know, the sound, I mean, it can go right through you. It's, it's just, it's, it's what being as, you know, we are human animals designed to live as human, uh, you know, group animals designed to live as group animals. Yeah. And so uh, the so-called burden is really about how the group manages its uh, something more collective. Um, and it's it's part of our I think our group our group nature uh, that's very very involved in care. The the other element and certainly you know I, I often think the Francis report I agree with you was hugely important and valuable, but it there's no point in saying to people you should be compassionate if you've generated rigid structures whereby people don't feel empowered to change them to allow me to have time and space and ask for training. So this issue of agency and a feeling of, of trying to change the rigid routines um, so that I, I'm constantly not doing my, my rounds, my drug rounds, whatever it is. So, so empowering staff to change the framework. Any thoughts on that from, from your reading? No, I think it's very, very important actually that, that, that those sorts of things, those sorts of possibilities be there um, I, unfortunately, in this country, I think we're moving away from that towards heavy-handed regulation mm -hmm. um, and uh, away from, a, I think, spontaneous interaction. Yeah. You know, we really want to root out spontaneous interaction, and that's, that's terrible, I think, in so many specialties. It's very, very important. Um, so, yeah. I mean, the thing that drew me to this was just noticing on the basis of uh, having friends who'd had strokes and things, just how odd their friends were. Mm. That people withdrew, there was a certain um, reluctance, a certain uh, reticence that they couldn't explain about in, in their behavior. And I think actually this is, this is a general human trait. One of, the, one of the failings of the medical humanities, it's always seemed to me, is uh, that the closer it gets to medicine, the more it wants to blame medicine mm -hmm. and doesn't uh, take account of what medicine's dealing with is is just a part of a much more much more general human situation. So I'm always methodologically very committed to 
concepts that will apply equally well to the medical situation and to other situations. Uh, Neil, I'm not sure if Des has warned you, but my random thought processes sometimes, uh, you know, are kind of out there a bit. But there, there is one uh, thing I'd like to uh, draw you out on, and if it's kind of too much out of left field, we might curtail this discussion, but it's all kind of against the background of in the relatively recent past, looking after an animal aging and clearly dying. And by any definition, uh, you know, an enormous care burden, as would be apparent to an outsider, looking at the amount of care and attention that this animal needed. And then, of course, when the animal did die, the sense of loss and grief. Mm. And in all of this, uh, the thought registered with me that in addition to a burden of caring, there was also extraordinary rewards for caring. And I wonder if we can bring that back into the human context and maybe look at aspects of care in the context of rewards and see whether uh, the concepts of mirroring and holding and indeed compassion can be applied to rewards uh, in the context of caring for humans. I think that's such a brilliant point, Paul. I think that's really just such a brilliant point. And it takes us back to the I, uh, something I wish I'd said, and I will say in future versions of this paper, the holder is held optimally. This is really what Joe Pike is showing us. You know, he wouldn't want to lose his motor neuron disease. Just as I think, you know, uh, my sister who looks after my uh, parents with dementia was just appalled at the thought um, that one of them might get COVID, for instance, um, because it's what gives her, her life meaning. And of course, you see very often in, I guess, in hospital bereavements, you know, for families who perhaps are caring for somebody with an illness, they die in hospital. And then what happens uh, is not only does the per when the person dies, not only are they bereaved of the person, they're bereaved of the holding function of the hospital. Mm. It's a double bereavement, you know, because you've no business there anymore. X is dead. And um, I think it's actually very, very hard for people to, to manage, you know, and, and actually, um, you know, we're not very good at that, uh, at managing that loss here in particular in Britain. I you think don't really that know what to say about it. Yeah, that's a hugely valid point. I mean, uh, a discussion I often have with adult children who worry about their frail older mother looking after their frail older father with dementia, and they think it would be good for mom and dad if dad, you know, goes into a nursing home. And what I have to try to say to them is, you know, although it is very challenging for your mom, not having him in the house, having that empty space, that gap, I've seen it so often, is also quite crushing. And I think it really is important that we don't interfere in, in any inappropriate or no matter how well-meaning way in, in those sort of care paradigms and support. Absolutely. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Could I throw in something a little from left field as well, or maybe from the right field? No. 
the things that concerns me a little bit is the is the role of the private sector in care and how freely and liberally uh, the word care is is prioritized or highlighted and yet the um the the sense is that very often there's cutting of corners uh, i used to work in the uk and the nhs and they weren't called care homes then and i have to say i always get a slight little bit of heartburn when i hear the phrase used in such a way when we know there's so many challenges your thoughts on uh, whether the challenges of care in a, in, in a in a private economy yeah well of course this is what really you know mull in the logic of care and the logic of choice uh, is, is brilliant on this subject. I mean, what she talks about is that what's apparently offered as choice is really just commodification of the individual component parts of care. Mm. And you might do things for non-Hippocratic reasons. You might do things because, well, you choose to do them, mm -hmm. you know, so do them. And that's just part of your, that's part of care. And she says, this is completely, uh, distinct from what care actually is, which is a, a constructive, uh, interactive process to uh, collectively manage some form of impairment or deficit. Um, I think that would be my, my main thought on that, Dennis. Paul, any thoughts there? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going off on another thought, but uh, when you finish that, I, I, I'll come back with another question, if you don't mind. But we, we've also got a question from the panel, from, from the attendees, so we might just take that next and then come back to you, Paul. Uh, so from, um, we, uh, thank you for a fascinating discussion. To what extent does the research reveal substantial cultural variation in how care is valued, particularly in terms of treating our older people? How much does it take, uh, draw on UK Anglosphere context or mainly in wealthy countries? The social context clearly being important here. That is just such a marvellous question, just such a marvellous question. Absolutely the case, Nicholas, and thanks for your very kind remark. Um, I think that in the uh, English-speaking world, and basically in Northern Europe anyway, and large parts of America, um, let us say you announce you have a cancer, and it's a bit touch and go. And it, what will happen is typically, at first people, you'll get the the love will pour in in the phone calls. I'm so concerned. Then what happens is there's a kind of stage two of people withdrawing and they say, hang on, did you smoke? Did you eat red meat? I don't eat red meat, etc." But it's magical thinking. It's mm. basically saying there is a reason why you got condition X and I'm going to keep condition X in you. Um, and uh, have you heard about the person who got rid of that condition by cycling 40 miles a day or by swimming with dolphins or, uh, you know, the sick are always, I think, magnets for magical thinking in, 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 in highly atomized societies. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, this new book uh, by Joseph Henrik, the Harvard anthropologist who talks about weird societies, Western, educated, individualistic, rich and democratic. And um, they're bad at thinking about situations in, in which the self is not completely in control. And basically, you know, I've spent a long time reading, I mean, I've read hundreds of illness narratives and in Anglosphere illness narratives, in Nicholas's terms, you can set your watch by 
the appearance of a paragraph that will say something like, well, I don't want to say everyone abandoned me. Actually, some of my friendships became a bit closer, but there's no question that, that the intersubjective web uh, on which my life was based got thinner when I got this condition. In Italy, I've had, um, I remember uh, a Sicilian anaesthetist telling me, this is just wrong, this is just wrong. If you get something in Italy, in, in Sicily, certainly in Southern Italy, um, your problem is going to be that there will be 30 well-wishers sitting in your living room while you're groaning in bed upstairs and you're wondering how you can decently get them to leave the house. It's very, very different. And I think actually, but in terms of mirroring and um, holding, I think what's happening there is the group is supporting itself, uh, is supporting the individual members of the group to be constructive in relation to the ill person. Whereas when individuals hear about an illness, they wonder, oh, who am I for person X? There's a pecking order. Where do I come in that pecking order? Am I a close friend or a distant friend? Mm. Would I be getting in the way if I rang up and said, how's it going? Very, very different. So I think these cultural points are hugely important, actually. Thanks very much. Paul, you had another thought. Yes, sorry, I was uh, on my own wavelength there. My apologies. But I was just thinking of the situation, the professional caring domain, where there is a lack, a demonstrable lack of care. And how is it that uh, professionals uh, become desensitized, um, lose the traits that Kleinman would have you believe can be developed, um, can be learned and can be practiced? Mm -hmm. uh, the whole area of burnout in what to me is often an extraordinarily demanding yeah. environment and Neil, uh, how you might apply your structure to that context. Yeah, well, I mean, this is why I, can't, I keep coming back to the point that caring is not for everybody. There are people you definitely want to keep out of caring professions. Uh, no MCQ computer program is going to give them. You know, basically caring is learned in the home, in development, and you can professionalize it when they've already got it. When people enter a clinical profession, they've already got it, ideally. And then you can professionalize what they've already got. Um, but for instance, I think of the cases like um, Winterbourne Close. I don't know if you remember, this was a care home in Bristol where the care workers were beating the hell out of um, the people in their care. And at least one person went to jail. And I remember a care worker, seeing on the BBC, a care worker saying, giving a very heartfelt, profound apology, actually. And I, in my terms, I think this is, um, if we go back to, uh, mirroring. Think about it as a baby crying, you know. Uh, there is distress. There's a call for help. You try to help and what then happens is you, your help doesn't work. And so in a sense, 
you're being told that you are bad. Something is being told, something is being said to you about it is your fault. People feel profoundly blamed. And it's this, you know, I don't want what you're giving me is very, very dangerous. It makes people nuts. It's, it's, uh, and it's, 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 it's actually um, a, a catastrophic failure of mirroring. And, and, uh, yeah, and, and the nuts, the nutty form it takes is, you know, pumping people. Um, and, it, and, it, and, and, and that will go on happening, I think. We'll take one the very helpful, very helpful answer. This is really bringing us to very, uh, I've expanded out the field of this marvellous talk. One last question from our attendees and then we'll close. Um, thank you very much for this marvellous talk. We were wondering, regarding mirror, if as patients, it would not be frustrating to see so energetic dynamic caregivers who they'd like to mirror but cannot, or would it rather bring them up? What would be the appropriate behaviour to build compassion? Challenging question. It is a challenging question. Well, I think it's about just leaving space for a sense of um, possibility in the other. Uh, you know, I think that's just hugely important. And here I think of in Atulga one days uh, being mortal. I can't remember the guy's name, but maybe Paul or Des will remember it. But the chap who took over a care home somewhere in the East Coast, and there were a lot of patients with dementia in it. And it was, it, the people in it were being written off. And uh, he basically turned it into a menagerie. He brought in cats, dogs, goldfish, budgies, the whole shebang. And he basically assigned each resident, you know, you will look after that goldfish. And of course they did. There was, um, I mean, I think this is, uh, so it's, it's somehow having a sense of including people in, you know, the infant researchers have a wonderful phrase. It's Colwyn Trevarden's phrase. It's elaborating the significance of the life world. To me, that is the meaning of life, elaborating the significance of the life world. And, you know, if it means popping a few grains into a goldfish bowl, we love it. So I hope that answers that question somewhat anyway. No, thanks very much. No, that's a, a lovely way to end it. And it's about creating space. And hopefully this is what these seminars are doing. I'd really like to thank uh, Neil for a most fantastic talk. Really, really gripping and all the better for being without PowerPoint slides. I'd like to thank Paul for his very thoughtful and grounded reply for the really interesting questions. And just a reminder, uh, this time next month, March the 24th, we'll have Stephen Post the celebrated ethicist of dementia with respondent uh, Professor Sean Kennelly from the Memory Service in Tallaght University Hospital. Thanks to everybody. I'm very energetic. The hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stepping provenance towards the history of the Taiwanese library. As well as being here. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. Bye.